Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wool on us. Facing and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinizing through their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. A couple of reminders up top. Uh, first off, let us know what you think of the show. Uh, we get feedback, uh, but it seems to come in somewhat randomly. Uh, and it's been a while since I've specifically asked for feedback. And so I think it's time we did. So if you get a chance, let us know. What do you like about the show? What don't you like about the show? <laughs> do you like our guests? Are there other guests you'd like to hear? Do you like the topics? Do you like the format? Whatever you want to let us know, uh, please. Uh, let us know, however you can. Uh, on to today's topic. Uh, as some of you know, TechDirt grew out of a project that I started uh, 20 years ago at business school, where I was trying to make sense of what I was learning about business and business models, and what I was seeing at the same time happening in the technology world, where innovation was happening and things were changing very, very rapidly. And thanks to lots of study and some really fantastic professors, I, I think I started to put together an overall view of the world. Uh, and it's one that I, I think is still pretty much true today. And it's one driven by a strong belief in the power of open markets and competition to drive useful innovations. Um, but one that doesn't avoid the fact that companies sometimes go off the rails and do fairly destructive things. Um, from the earliest days uh, in our own content guidelines for TechDirt, I wrote the following. I said, our position is that to encourage innovation, freedom of ideas is not just a must, but the natural state of the market. And that innovation is built on the backs of previous ideas and inventions, and hindering that slows down the process for innovation. And we also believe in a true open market you have to treat your customers first, and if you don't, someone else will, even if doing right by your customer means undercutting an existing business model. Now, for years, I've felt this sort of constant struggle over this concept, which you run into um, with all different kinds of people and ideological beliefs when you talk to them about innovation. There are some who argue that an open or free market means no regulations or no limits at all, and they argue that any rules of the road are somehow damaging. And yet, time and time again, we've seen how companies actually abuse such freedoms to harm the public and people and whatever else, whether through, you know, uh, intentional uh, actions, whether it's collusion or uh, violating people's privacy or other things. Uh, in those guidelines that we wrote up, I, I tried to sort of settle this uh, conflict by saying that you need real competition. And then when you have that real competition, then companies are forced to be good. And I still believe that, but truly competitive markets aren't always that common, unfortunately. Um, and of course, we see lots of examples of abuse in such uh, markets where there isn't real competition. So I'm always fascinated 
to explore where these concepts work and where they break down. Um, James Allworth uh, has spent many years thinking about some of these issues as well. Uh, years back, he co-wrote a book with the uh, guru of disruptive innovation, Clayton Christensen. Uh, and these days he works in the tech industry, putting this stuff into practice. And he's also the co-host of one of my favorite podcasts on these topics called Exponent uh, with Ben Thompson. Uh, a few months back, Allworth wrote an excellent article on Medium exploring some of the issues that I just raised uh, in an article called Prioritizing Economics is Crippling the U.S. Economy, which is a, a compelling title, <laughs> uh, in which he points to an interesting theory that rather than looking at the economy as a means to an end, too many people are treating the economy as an end unto itself. Uh, the article is long, detailed, and brilliant, uh, and I'm not going to repeat all of the arguments right now, but I wanted to bring James on to talk about this and see if we can't get closer to understanding how to encourage uh, innovation for good while limiting potential problems. So, James, welcome. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for having me, and thank you for the very kind introduction. Uh, sure, uh, no problem. So uh, to start out, do you want to sort of summarize your thesis in that article? I know it's long and detailed, and, and, and I really recommend that everybody try and you know look it up and read it, and we'll link to it in the show notes. Um, but if you want to give sort of a quick summary, yeah, I, I, that that sounds good. Your your one line synopsis at the very start was actually pretty powerful in in terms of like capturing it quickly. This idea that. Uh, the, the economy is is a mean is is a means to an end. It allows us to do certain things, and and somewhere along the way, it feels like that rather than use it as a means uh, to an end, it's become something that people think we should focus on as as the primary measure of success in terms of a society. And it definitely does enable things, and and economic growth, for example, uh, is a is a useful measure and a useful way of like getting people to a better place, but it's not the only thing that matters. And that I pull in a, a bunch of different research along the way, which I'm sure we'll get into to basically outline how, how I think this has happened, like to give people some context on how to think about the problem. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a really good summary. And, and so, you know, one of the things, um, so I'll just sort of explain my, reaction to it. When I saw mm. the title, um, I was concerned. <laughs> because, you know, and, and this is something that I've talked about a lot, you know, economics to me, is a really powerful force. And, mm. and, you know, I've argued for a long time, that understanding economics and looking at things through an economics lens is really important. And, and I often point out that I think we'd be, you know, we'd often be in a lot better place if we, you know, if more people actually used, mm -hmm. you know, the basic tools of economics to understand things, you know, specifically policymaking as a topic that we often do. But then as I read what you were actually saying in the article, it became more and more interesting and more and more convincing to me that like, oh, yeah, like, let's not get too, you know, uh, and because and you, you're not throwing out the idea of, of using economics, you're just saying there are other things to consider as well. And you know, if you only look at, you know, is this good for the economy uh, versus, you know, how it impacts other things, then you're going to miss all sorts of other consequences that may, in fact, in the long run, do more harm to even to the economy <laughs> um, than elsewhere. 
Totally. I, and so one of the ideas that I draw upon is by a professor at um, Harvard Business School by the name of David Moss. And he's a he's an economic historian. And he got really interested in, in this problem. And he went back and he researched the nature of policy debates inside the U United States Congress and the Senate to basically see what he could see about this problem. And one of the things that he observed was that the nature of the debate slowly started to change over the 20th century. In the early 20th century, it was very much focused on what what's best for democracy. And it, it, it basically viewed economics as a means of enhancing democracy. Like, how can we have better educated citizens? Um, how can we make sure that the media supports a healthy democracy? But he observed this interesting thing. And I, th I think that the nature of the, the change started around the Great Depression, which kind of makes sense because you assume the economy will always be healthy. And then you go through a period like the Great Depression where it's not and people get burnt quite badly by that experience. And it, it started to change during that period. And, and the change was pretty complete by the time that the Second World War had ended, by the late 1950s. And the way he characterized the change was uh, the priority in the debate was uh, what's best for democracy, shifting to what's best for the economy. And uh, he, he gives some interesting examples, like media is, is one of them. So the nature of how policymakers were thinking about regulating radio, for example, during the 1920s, and they were very concerned about the prospect of someone getting a stranglehold on markets and the impact that would then have on pushing a point of view out onto the populace versus the way that cable was regulated in the 70s and 80s, much further down the line, or television even. And and the the it was a much more uh, technical argument around what was going to be economically most efficient. And Moss takes pains to uh, say that it's not that we shouldn't be uh, concerned with the economics. We should. It's just uh, it's just what comes first. And is it is it economics for its own sake or is it is it democracy and economics supporting democracy and and that's how he characterized the change and it, it, i thought it was a super interesting point um that, yeah and and i mean and and I, f I find it very compelling but just to play devil's advocate a mm. little bit um the you know some people i could see how that argument as much sense as it it seems to make on its face could also be potentially misused as well, right? And, and, and could be used in dangerous ways, I think. Um, you know, there are arguments that people will make for, you know, silencing free speech or, um, you know, attacking certain kinds of innovations because they'll argue, I mean, you know, to, to use a real example, people are now complaining that, you know, Facebook and Twitter may be bad for democracy, right? Mm. Um, so, you know, you could take that argument, which again, I do find compelling and and have it be spun in a way where someone says, um, okay, well, you know, let's look at what's good for democracy. Facebook is bad for democracy. Therefore, we should employ, you know, strong censorship across Facebook for things that we don't like. Yeah, I mean, and it's a it's a interesting way of playing devil's advocate. I think if you're getting to the point of focusing on 
focusing on companies, you kind of you're kind of jumping ahead a little bit more. I, I guess what what I would like to see more of is policymakers thinking about these problems in the abstract, thinking about uh, how to create a environment in which democracy flourishes, as opposed to create an environment in which profit flourishes. And I think that would be the distinction I would draw. And when you when you create uh, the kind of culture where that debate takes place, the you would hope that they would be weighing exactly the point that you just made, which is like free speech is really important. And you want to be very careful about the government reaching into private enterprise and, and making uh, making determinations about what's okay to say and what's not okay to say. And on the other hand, you want to still do have the debate about this idea that one company controlled effectively by one person with an audience that numbers in the billions mm -hmm. has an insane amount of power and that could be should they should that person decide to be to, to misuse that power it could be very destabilizing for democracy and so that's something that uh that's something that you would want to balance so i I, I bring it up not to say that like policymakers should pick up the sledgehammer of regulation or controlling <laughs> companies and, and apply it firmly to Facebook. I right. guess I, I just, I, I mean, I hear these debates. I, I see articles written by like on Tector by you or other folks on the internet, and it's very thoughtful and it's the right kind of discussion. But when it comes to these kind of discussions in Congress, they happened in the 1920s. They're not <laughs> happening now. What's going right. on? Yeah, no, that's and that that's a fair statement, and I think, I think the point that you get at in the article that was so compelling to me is is, is how much of the framing of this matters, and and even the way that you have this this discussion, and I mean, this is on a much smaller scale, but I think there there's there's something of a parallel, and this is something that, for years I I spoke about and and kind of. Um, frustrated me, and we don't hear about it as much these days, but but back, this is probably you know maybe five to 10 years ago, mm. where, um, you know, Craigslist, these days, people don't talk about Craigslist as much. It's still a fairly successful company, I think. But, uh, you know, when it was really, you know, sort of a, a dominant platform, um, and yet, you know, most of Craigslist was available for free, they only charged for, for a very few areas on the platform. Mm. And I saw, like, people would talk about it, or there would be these articles arguing that, like, Craigslist was somehow, like, anti-capitalist or like against you know against profit because it was it, or it wasn't maximizing um it, it wasn't maximizing profit was, mm. was the argument that people were making and that was like that was annoying to me because i was like well if if they did charge for every little thing and if they did put in all these you know annoying things or added advertisements or or paid placement you know or, or you know paid promotional placement or, or or the things that people wanted them to do to mm quote unquote maximize revenue that that would take away the reason why so many people used it and maybe it would give you a big boost in in you know revenue and profits over the short term but would hasten kind of you know the opportunity for others to come in and and sort of the demise of of the reason why people went to Craigslist in the first place yeah and i kind of see what you're saying is is a similar thing on a larger scale where it's like if you focus on this sort of very narrow issue of like, you know, the economic results or, or, you know, more specifically like Wall Street results or, or profit, um, then you get a very distorted picture. It's, it's absolutely right. I think this is, 
I mean, what you just described is, it's interesting because when you get these things right, it's, it's nested. The ideas are nested. You see them play out in an economy. You see them play out in a company. And, and what you just described is actually the causal mechanism behind disruption. Like this was the insight that Clay had. People, executives at the top, uh, uh, their job is to deliver numbers to Wall Street. And they get so focused on delivering those quarterly numbers that it gives them myopia. They become, they think their purpose is to just deliver numbers and they lose sight of the broader purpose of, of why the company exists, which is to create a product that's, that, that creates a customer. Right. And, and this, this focus on these different priorities results in a whole stream of, of downstream actions that happen. And if, you're, if your primary focus is on profit, it causes you to behave in such a way that it sows the seed of your own demise because you only go after the most profitable customers. You're always moving up market. You leave space in the low end and someone comes along with some low end innovation and you look down and you think, well... I mean, that's interesting, but it's also like the margins are terrible. And what's more, if this low end innovation takes root, chances are it's going to wipe out my business. And this business is the reason why I'm rich and famous and a CEO. So I don't want to go down there and they ignore it and they allow it to take root and it grows and grows and grows. And eventually it displaces that this, this incumbent organization. And I, I mean, for an example, if folks haven't heard too much about disruption, but the one that's off the, that often comes to my mind is Blockbuster Netflix. Like sure. Blockbuster had stores all over the country, it was a $10 billion business. It had insane margins and investors saw Netflix come along and started pressuring blockbuster management to do something about it and they just they weren't interested they're like yeah we've looked at it like there's a press release that where they basically say you know we look at how people get home entertainment there is quote no viable options in the <laughs> online or it, it's just crazy but they're, they're smart people and they did it like when you it's easy to look back and think they're stupid but they, these people are smart and the context in which they're operating causes them to have this myopia where they're just focused on their margins and all this profitability and when you look at it through that lens like it kind of makes sense but sure. the same thing applies inside of an economy like economic growth like nobody, no politician gets elected when they're presiding over a period of economic decline. And so therefore everybody thinks economic growth. Like, and again, this is why I think it's interesting that, that Moss's observation happened during the depression. I think there's some relationship there. So everyone starts to think, well, if I want to get elected, I need economic growth. And somewhere along the way, they make the mistake of thinking their job is just to deliver economic growth. And then there are proxies for that, which is profitability. And they think, well, if we want economic growth, we need, we need to be profitable and I need re-election campaign funds. So I'm going to go out and speak to all these people that work in these businesses that have all this money that can donate to me. And they tell me they need these regulations so they can be more successful. Well, I do this. A, I get all these funds to get reelected, which is fantastic. And B, these are these are the economic pillars of 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 America. Like this is fantastic. We should be we should be incorporating what they want. And what they don't realize is they are yes, you're driving up profitability, but how you drive up profitability really matters. You want it 
you want to be allowing the next generation of disruptive startups to take root inside the United States. That's the basis on which the strength of this economy exists. And when you are, when you are suppressing those um, in order to prop up the old companies, then your yeah your profits look fantastic, and this is part of the reason why I think economic profits are, uh, are so high. With like, like you look at the S and P five hundred, profitability is at record highs, but the way in which they're achieving it is 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 by. Uh, is not by ways that are like long-term sustainable. They're, they're mergers and acquisitions and reducing competition and suppressing uh, suppressing uh, disruptive startups. And the sad fact of the matter is that in the long run, if the, these companies will emerge, and if they don't emerge in America, they're going to emerge somewhere else. And there's real uh, rivalry for ec global economic leadership now with China, and th these people will they'll go back to China and they'll start businesses over there and we'll be looking for the first time in a very long time the prospect of a country that's not a liberal democracy being a world economic leader and I think in part it has to do with exactly this problem yeah no I, th I think that's that is a, a very very good summary and I, I really like the idea of you know in some sense you're creating this this analogous situation to the whole innovators, innovators dilemma mm. concept, which I hadn't considered until you just sort of brought it up. And, and my mind is racing now because that, that's, that's really interesting in this idea that, you know, the problem that, that you see there is you have this sort of what seems like rational behavior, mm. rational, you know, uh, profit motivated uh, behavior that, that sort of misses the long-term picture and, and allows for, you know, disruption to come from mm. from down below. And what you're arguing here is when we sort of just focus on, you know, on, on questionable, potentially questionable economic metrics mm. um, as sort of the be all end all of, you know, what's good for, you know, well, what's good, period, um, then you miss the underlying factors. And that allows for other um, you know, potentially other economies or other countries to come in and be the sort of disruptive provider. Yeah, and and it's also the the context in which democracy has kind of evolved inside the United States, where where uh, policy makers and like folks in Congress and folks in the Senate and the president. They need a lot of money in order to be able to successfully run for office. Now, right. that results in them spending more and more time around people who have lots and lots of money. And slowly but surely, they begin to think their constituents aren't necessarily all the people, but just the people <laughs> with money. And they begin to act in their service um, and even in very slight ways. And Larry Lessig has a fantastic book called Republic Lost where he dives into some of these problems. And, and I mean, it's, it's easy to paint these folks as um, being uh, of, of ill intent. And I don't, I don't necessarily think that's true. I think, I think they're just, they are motivated to make a difference for their country. It's just the context in which they're operating in the same way the context in which CEOs of these big companies operate encourage them to do this thing that's not in the, the best long-term interests of the institution they serve. Yeah, and I think that's that's really fair. And I think, um, and I would argue that that while there may be some people who, you know, are are not necessarily trying to do good, you know, for the most part, I think I, I tend to default to the belief that most people are hmm. trying to do the right thing. Um, they may be, you know, they may have 
skewed inputs <laughs> or, right. or or skewed filters in terms of how they they look through those inputs. Um, but I th- and I think part of it gets back to this other idea that um, you sort of touch on in 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 the piece and and, and in this discussion um, that that again I've sort of brought up before and argued about is this idea of you know we optimize for the the things that we can measure mm. um, and you know so as soon as you put any kind of measurement into any kind of discussion or equation in terms of like how do we improve stuff you end up optimizing towards that even when people recognize like this is not everything or this is not even the most accurate so like you know things like gdp which Mm. is which is a almost entirely useless statistic for the most part you know but everyone focuses on it or or in a more specific context you know one that i've argued about over and over again is the fact that so many studies and certainly politicians use like number of patents granted as a uh, you know <laughs> metric for innovation, when you know we argue all the time that you know there there are all sorts of bad patents that actually harm innovation and and if that's just your your general metric, then you know you have incentive to just approve all sorts of bad patents because your metrics look better even if you're actually causing more harm for innovation than, than not. And so in some sense you're c- kind of saying the same thing on a broader scale, which is like we've you know we we've set up our metric for what's good based on you know what what is good for the economy uh, broadly speaking and that can miss a lot of really important other things both both within that because you're talking about sort of an aggregate uh metric anyways um and sort of what is the wider impact of that i mean i think that's an excellent characterization of it and it's it's a it's a really hard thing to overcome. It, it, I guess it kind of touches on the role of what you think uh, policymakers like what their role is inside of an economy. And this is something that again, drawing on more research uh, on on this specific topic, I pulled in the work of um, William Bommel, who's a famous economist. And one of the the things that he did was try to uh, he, he did a deep dive on entrepreneurship. And so the traditional view of entrepreneurship is this thing that kind of waxes and wanes for, for, for no solid reason whatsoever. It's like, oh, it, it's, it's, it's almost this quixotic thing. And Bomber was like, no, I don't actually think that's the way it works. I think there are entrepreneurs everywhere and they are, their goal is just to increase their, their fame and fortune. Like there are people all around the world like that. And that insight was really powerful to me. It, it made me realize that, that it's not something unique to the United States or unique to any one country. It's, this is something that is inherent to human beings. But Bobo went on from there to say that there are different types of entrepreneurship given that. Uh, there's destructive entrepreneurship, which is what you might think of with drug lords, which has taken root in certain parts of the world. There's productive entrepreneurship, which is kind of what you'd imagine with Steve Jobs or the typical entrepreneur that everyone glorifies in the United States. And for good reason, people who make money, but they do so in such a way that everybody uh, benefits. Mm-hmm. And then in between, there's this interesting interesting case that Bommel calls unproductive entrepreneurship, which isn't, it isn't the drug lord version and it isn't the productive Steve Jobs version, but it's basically using a lot of the things that you've talked about, like examples like patents or litigation 
or lobbying as a mechanism through which to uh, increase profitability. And that is exactly like when I read this, it was like an aha moment for me, <laughs> because that is exactly what seems to be increasing in the United States. It's gone from uh, an economy that was very much biased towards productive entrepreneurship. And it's not that it's switching massively towards destructive entrepreneurship. It's more this, this kind of insidious, uh, unproductive entrepreneurship. And Bobble goes on to make the case that the role for policymakers is to focus on the rules of the game because the rules of the game determine what kind of entrepreneurship you get. Right. And, and like in this context, suddenly, A, like what a policymaker's role in an economy uh, becomes much more clear to me. But B, it suddenly starts to make like, like this general disease with things like a disease with patents and so on, which uh, I felt and you felt and I'm sure others listening to this podcast have felt like suddenly you have a lens through which to understand why that's happening and what to do about it. Yeah, I, th I think that's that's a really useful way of looking at it. It reminded me, you know, when when I read that in your piece, it reminded me um, uh, of this, uh, well, author, and he used to be an investor and, um, both on wall street and, and, in a hedge mm. fund, uh, this guy, Andy Kessler, he writes for the wall street journal all the time now. Um, and years ago he wrote a book, um, called eat people. <laughs> huh. It was sort of, this is like seven or eight years ago now. And he was sort of predicting kind of like how, um, you know, automation was sort of changing things. It's a really interesting book. All of his books are really interesting. Mm. But in that book, he has this concept of, um, uh, he sort of splits it into like innovative entrepreneurs and political entrepreneurs. Mm. And and it's basically that same point that, that you talk about with Baumol, where, you know, you have people who are entrepreneurial in any sort of you know, standard sense, but they're not doing it to actually increase the overall pie. <laughs> they're using it to sort of create exclusive arenas that help themselves um, more than, than helping the world, uh, you know, uh, more broadly. Whereas, you know, more innovative entrepreneurs are, are doing both, right? They're, they're certainly benefiting themselves, but they're doing so in a way that, that makes the world, generally speaking, a better place and, and helps more people. Um, they profit maf massively from that process as well, but that's, you know, that's kind of the reward that we see them getting. The problem is when the system shifts more towards the, you know, what, what Baumol describes as the, the unproductive entrepreneurship, or as Kessler says, the political entrepreneurship, where it's just, it's, you know, it's what people also refer to as like regulatory capture, mm -hmm. or, you know, other systems where, you know, you're using the system to, you know, to benefit yourself above, um, you know, above everyone else. Totally. And uh, I mean, it's bringing this, these two concepts together that I think really forms the crux of what it was that I was writing about. I think lots of folks have understood these two ideas separately, but mm -hmm. folks haven't really brought them together. And this interplay, like basically this idea that a 
you want it to be much harder for entrepreneurs to play the political capture or the unproductive entrepreneurship or however you want to call it. You want it to be much harder for entrepreneurs to play that game than the productive entrepreneurship game. But the problem is all things being equal, it's really hard to create a company and bring a product to market that wins market share and is very profitable. Actually, yeah. it is, it's much easier and much more predictable, assuming the, you're not really tied around the rules, to play this, this uh, political entrepreneurship game. And the, the, the interplay between uh, folks uh, running these companies, making lots of money, realizing that they can play a game of regulatory capture, the system of democracy not being resistant to being captured. And then you get this interplay where you have the executives like, and again, they're just trying to do their jobs. I don't, I don't, in most instances, I don't want to characterize these guys as villains. They're just trying to do their job of delivering the numbers, which is the way in which the system is set up. And they realize that the most reliable way to deliver the numbers is to go buy some regulation. So they go buy some regulation and the regulators are thinking, well, I'm getting money to be reelected and this is within the rules. And so they put in place the regulation and whoa, look at profits going up. Whoa, <laughs> right. look at the S&P 500 hitting record highs. Like everybody's doing a great job. Everybody's winning. It's just in, in, the short, in the short run, that's true. But in the long run, I think there are going to be some pretty catastrophic consequences. And it's this notion of the prioritizing of economics or democracy and which comes first. And it used to be that democracy came first and that presented a form of resistance to this kind of political entrepreneurship. But as that slipped, democracy has become less resistant to this political entrepreneurship and people are prioritizing the economy first. Like regulators implicitly, like people in Congress, whether they like, they, they will never admit this, but you look at the way they behave, their priorities are economics first, profitability first. It's not even economics, it's profitability. And right. you start to institute, they're instituting these rules that, that, are, that we would call crony capitalism or corporatocracy, where, yeah, profits are going up and things look great on the surface. But when you dig deeper as to why, it's not being done in a sustainable way. Yeah. And I, I think that's, that's the really big point. And, you know, the, the whole like focus on profits is kind of weird because, you know, you think about it, if you're talking about sort of, you know, if you're talking about sort of like a true sort of free market, and this sort of gets back to my intro, you know, the more competition you have, there should be sort of less profit, right. right? Because, you know, the competition drives the profit down because you, you get more towards your, you know, marginal. Well, right. And you want to know a way to, to like create lots of really big profits. Like everybody <laughs> becomes a monopoly. Like let's right. just have one monopoly in every industry. And I guarantee you profits will skyrocket, but everybody recognizes that that's a terrible idea, but <laughs> right. somehow along the way, we're creeping towards that mentality. It's like profit profits first and and yeah you're starting to see this really weird behavior as a result yeah and and you know to be clear like you know the ability of like an actual you know productive or however you want to put it productive entrepreneur to create profits by being first to the market and providing something new and wonderful that that allows them to to you know to get those profits that's that's a, a great motivating factor for for innovation but 
you know, we shouldn't then let them, you know, pull up the drawbridge and, mm. and, and say, you know, well, now there's not going to be any competition. And, and that's what we see over and over again. And, and, you know, you have this thing that happens where you have these industries that pop up and when they first pop up and they're doing all this innovative stuff and it's wonderful and it's actually, you know, producing all sorts of benefits for the world and, and, and maybe making some people very rich in the process and that's great. But then they reach a certain point where, you know, they get sort of fat and happy and they mm. want to, they want to stay fat and happy. Right. <laughs> and, and it seems like that's where the, the sort of political uh, gamesmanship starts to come into play. Right. And a healthy economy, the way a healthy economy deals with that is that it fosters competition. It fosters new entrants such that it has to, the, the fat cats have to stay on their toes because if they get, if they get lazy, if they just sit around, someone's going to come along and eat their lunch and they don't want that. Yeah. Um, and, and this is, this is where it's, it's starting to break down. Like the, the regulation isn't about creating new entrants. It's about propping up the old ones. And in much the same way that disruption, like executives think, I just need to protect my core business as opposed to I need a, to build a new business that destroys it. Like if they're thinking, if I don't build that new business, then that new business isn't going to get built. Therefore, my existing business will, will be profitable forevermore. Right. And, and the problem is is there are other jurisdictions there are other economies in which these new businesses will get start so it started so if they don't get started inside the united states they're going to go get started somewhere else and then they're going to get a foothold over there figure a whole bunch of things out and these companies are going to pop up all around the world it's not yeah. going to be in the united states anymore yeah and it's interesting and there's um there's an article that i saw recently and i have a tab open on it i still keep meaning to to write a post about it mm. um where the sort of gist of the article and i read it a few weeks ago so i don't i don't remember where who published it or whatever so i apologize um, but it fits into this conversation it was the argument that like you know you go back not too long ago really and and if you would look at sort of companies in China in particular, um, you know, the main thing that you would see were sort of clones of American companies mainly, like internet companies, you know, something would become semi-successful in, in the US and there would be a clone in China. Um, and now there are companies in China that are very clearly leading the way and where you actually have American companies kind of looking to the Chinese for like, you know, like mobile payments and, mm. and how are these things going to work? And like, you know, you have the whole sort of like WeChat ecosystem in China, which the more and more you study it, the more and more impressive it is. And we don't have anything really remotely like that in the U S right now. Um, and, and that, that whole sort of way that innovation is happening is, is shifting elsewhere. In, um, in the same way that these companies get lazy and complacent and think they're going to be number one forever. I mean, as I mean, this is the beauty of being a foreigner and coming into a place, <laughs> you get to sense these things. And there are definitely parts of America where it feels like that attitude has taken root again. It's like, it doesn't matter that we're not enabling all this innovation because we're the innovative uh, country and we've been doing this for so long and we've been out in front for so long that like this inherent belief in exceptionalism. But the exceptional, exceptionalism, and I think there's some truth to the idea of the exceptionalism, but it's born out of a context. It's born out of an environment. The environment, the, the country is exceptional because of the way democracy has enabled 
productive entrepreneurship to happen here much more so than anywhere else in the world. And at the same time, America is taking its foot off the gas in this. Other countries are realizing that there is real benefit to enabling this. And again, like you just said, like there will be examples that spring up all around the world uh, that won't start here. And the economic benefit will start to accrue to those countries instead yeah. of the United States. Yeah, this, this, this actually reminds me somewhat of, of a conversation I had. And this is going back a few years already. Um, and um, it, it was a conversation where I had sort of helped put together a bunch of pretty early stage um, startup entrepreneurs, um, you know, the, the founders or, and or CEOs hmm. of these companies and a discussion with, with a, a government official um, having to do with intellectual property. They were sort of trying to, to figure out, you know, hmm. they were trying to put together a, a proposal. And, and a, a, what we had been told when I was approached about setting up this phone call was that it would be about uh, copyright policy and recommendations on copyright. So I put together, there were, I think there were about 10 entrepreneurs on the, on the phone and there were maybe four or five uh, government folks. Um, and what was weird was you could tell from the call that um, there had been very large companies uh, talking to these same government officials, you know, fairly recently. And they were really, really focused on this idea that um, uh, China was, was, uh, you know, taking trade secrets and and copying stuff. And so they kept bringing back this, you know, we thought it was all going to be about copyright. And they kept bringing up, well, what about trade secrets? How concerned are you about China and trade secrets? Like over <laughs> and over again, they just kept asking this question. And everybody on the call kept like kind of ignoring that question and talking about copyright and, and other related things. And, and finally, like when they asked for maybe the fifth or sixth time, one of the entrepreneurs literally just said, you guys don't get it. Like, we don't, we don't care. <laughs> like, it's like, you know, there's a, a Chinese company will copy if, if I do something good with my company, a Chinese company is going to copy it. And that's fine. Because I, I feel confident that I can continue to innovate and out innovate anything that any other company is doing, whether it's in America or China or somewhere mm. else. Like, I don't want the government caring about <laughs> whether or not a Chinese company copies me, I want to be able to, to, you know, build what I want to build. Um, but you know, I don't think that message sticks because you know they don't hear from those people that often. What they hear from are the big giant company that's like, oh no, um, you know, this Chinese company is making this widget that competes with my widget, and something needs to be done. Right. It's it's and and the problem comes again. The, I I would say that. And, and the folks listening to this will probably react in the same way that, <laughs> that we react. It's like roll our eyes and like these guys, like your entrepreneur said, just don't get it, do they? And I would say, hang on, they are actually well-intentioned. They're trying sure. to look out for American interests. But what they don't realize is that in focus, in, in whose interests they focus and the regulation that they then bring to market, what, what happens is, uh, again, you see profits going up, you think you're doing a great job. What you don't see are, are the silent screams of the disruptive businesses <laughs> that never get started as a result of all these all these regulations that are designed to prop up the big companies. And and that's that's the issue here. Like there's this silent opportunity cost that ends up that 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 it's it's not like a big scandal or a smoking gun will ever emerge where people will point the finger and say, you, Mr. Politician, this is all your fault and you right. shouldn't have done this. It's just the case that guess what? 
WeChat is in China. Now, there are other there are other reasons why WeChat emerged in sure. China and not the United States. I don't want to I don't want to position it as the one reason that this happened was because of the topics we're talking about. Like uh, China was America was leading the world in mobile payments or, or leading the world in payments in general and uh because China was lagging so far behind, there was a lot more motivation for them to 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 build something new. And there were like a very it was a very different set of contexts. Like there sure. were lots of folks who had mobile devices in China when they were building it, and therefore WeChat emerged in the way it did. But there Absolutely. will be a whole bunch of other things that that, that like it's it's like these things are so delicate to to, <laughs> to enable the creation of these businesses is is like it it requires this ecosystem with just the right environment and anything you can do to swing the balance in your favor is something you should be doing and again by by focusing in the way that we're describing on this podcast like you're you're swinging the balance against people being able to start these businesses here and that again they're just going to go elsewhere yeah yeah and i th i think that's it's you know, it's one of the most difficult things and it, it, one of the most difficult things that, that we've sort of dealt with and sort of tried to think about better ways to present for, for basically the whole 20 years of TechTurd existing mm. is, is you know, how do you explain or how do you make people understand the innovation that never occurs, right? right? You know, because it's easy to see the thing that's going away, right? And it's, but it's, it's, you know, very difficult to close to impossible to get people to think about the innovation that, you know, that that could have happened had had we had a different right. policies and, in and place. I, I mean, it's a it's a really good point, and I think part of it is um, so. I like these big companies are big employers, and big employers have lots of voters in them. And when you start summing them up enough, like it, it matters to people. And so part of making people okay with this idea that it's actually a good thing if you have little companies emerging that are destroying big companies in your economy is making them feel safe. Because right now, if, if, I am a, if I'm a disruptive company and I come along and let's say for argument's sake, I figure out some way of knocking out, mm, let's say the taxi industry, like all the people <laughs> who work in taxis are gonna be like, oh my God, no, we need to stop this because it's a fight for their life, like right. their healthcare, their jobs, their, their, their kids' education, putting a roof over their family's heads are all dependent on their industry continuing to be successful. And so people, like when people's livelihoods are at stake, their ability to be open to this idea that actually this is a good thing that my company's about to get wiped out, like it's it's really not true. Like it's really hard to get people to appreciate that it's a good thing when they might find themselves out on the street. And so this is where this broader context of things like universal healthcare and education that's affordable, like is really important because when you, you think of, or just a social safety net in general, it means that people aren't going to end up out on the streets as this happens and society helps them and retrains them into the new jobs. And again, that's part and parcel of what we're talking about here, where it's encouraged, like you want the flywheel of new company creation to be faster and you have to do everything you can to support that. And this is one of those things. Yeah, it's, but it's a difficult thing. Right, of course. <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 yeah. I mean, th this whole situation is, is tricky. And what's funny is like, you know, you can have 
two people having basically this same podcast effectively we're talking about the the values and, and benefits to innovation and startups mm. and all of these things who could then argue for almost entirely different policies and and claim that they're arguing for the exact same thing mm. right and 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 that's you know we don't have much time left so i don't want to to dive too deeply back into this but like that's that's where i i always sort of run into into problems and and where this becomes so difficult to get people to think about it concretely because you know i could see people you know having this this exact same conversation about how how you know innovation is important competition mm. is important mm. and then but they come to the conclusion therefore that you know the things that you talk about the safety net or whatever that's somehow damaging to to the ability for for companies to innovate right yeah it's 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 really interesting and like this is the advantage of having one of these first principle discussions because <laughs> like you surface the issues and then you as you surface them you try to understand what the source of the disagreement is and and i guess what i would suspect the source of the disagreement is with someone like that is it's a belief about human nature it is a no. belief that if people are provided for, they are going to be lazy. Whereas I have a belief that if, yeah, and maybe that's true for some people, but generally I would say that people are in a search for meaning and they want to do something. And yeah, they need to have their basic needs met. But once they have those needs met, most people aren't just going to sit around and do nothing with their lives. And if that's what they're going to do, they're going to do that anyway, particularly as automation takes root. It's better to play for the upside of like, think about all the people that are staying in corporate jobs right now because they're worried about losing healthcare or they're worried about being able to pay for their kid's school. And imagine what could be unleashed if you took those those fears away from those people and made it okay for them to go out and start businesses. Like, again, it's like you've got to, you've, it, it's playing to win and it's not playing to like, well, yeah, sure, there are going to be, as we call them in Australia, doll bludgers, people who just <laughs> sit on the back of like government largesse. Like, yeah, people will take advantage of it. Um, but guess what? There will be plenty of people who don't. And the benefit of, of what you unlock is better than the cost of, of, of the people that end up doing that. And they're probably going to end up doing it anyway. So yeah, I, like, I mean, again, like, I think the value in you pushing back on me like that is you begin to key in on what the source of the disagreement is. And I think it's, yeah. it's a belief around human nature. Yeah, no, I, I think that's, that's true. And, and, um, I think well, there are a whole bunch of different directions that we could go in following this, but but we're also sort of out of time. But but um, yeah, this is really really interesting stuff. This is stuff that I I certainly think about kind of all the time. Um, so I'm 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 really glad that that you took the time to 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 jump on the podcast with us, and and um, I definitely want to have you back on at some point in the future to sort of continue this discussion or or to have related discussions because. Um, this isn't the type of stuff that, that you figure it all out in 45 minutes or whatever. No, it's not. Look, I, I, I totally agree. I, I love talking about this stuff. And I am a 
massive fan of your work and the work you do with TechDirt. It's like a, it's a, it's, it's, it's a public resource. It's, it's like you're doing a public service with it. So it's like, <laughs> it's a delight to be on here and to chat with you. And thank you so much for having me, Mike. Oh, uh, no problem. I mean, again, and, and for, for folks who, who listen to this podcast and want to listen to another podcast where you could hear James talk almost every week about this kind of stuff, um, the podcast is called Exponent. Um, and it's, it's really, really excellent. I mean, every week I'm kind of like, you know, sort of, uh, you know, cheering on what, what the conversation is about. Cause it's, it really, uh, gets me thinking and, and, uh, you know, re, re sort of reshapes things or reframes how I look at a whole bunch of different things. So, so I highly recommend that, but, but, but James, we'll, we'll definitely have you back on as well. Um, thank, thanks for this conversation and uh, thanks to everyone listening and we'll be back next week no get, huh, to grab a shovel and think of the tap, huh, if we don't stand up to them someone will get huh, to grab a shovel and